oh my God, it's so terrible being Jewish. I mean, there's anti-Semitism. I mean, this synagogue got firebombed and this politician has said something anti-Semitic and this person's, this TV presenter has said something and oh my God, it sucks to be Jewish. Everyone hates us. And he's like, what are you talking about? The other guy's reading the Times. He's like, we control the media. We control finance. We control politics. We're all rich. It's fucking brilliant being Jewish. Exactly. <laughs> it's the same shit. COVID, vegan, environmentalism, virtue signal, you know, holier than now. It's just human nature. Wait a minute, who the fuck are you? And who gives a shit about what you have to say? And why you're just lucky to be here and you've only got this successful business or you've only got this in your life because it's just random. To intro this conversation, if it's okay with you, can I read out some of the topics you mentioned in the message? Yeah. So yeah. then the audience kind of knows what we're getting into. Yeah. What we might get into. No, of course. And we're, we're rolling now. Yeah. 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 Okay. Go for it. <laughs> you can also introduce yourself if you want. No, no, no. You do it. I'm curious <laughs> what you're going to say. <laughs> okay. Well, it's just the, the message you sent me. So you said, do you know what topics you want to cover? I guess things like growing up in Israel, growing up religious and my on-off relationship with God. I'm not an atheist, but I've been very religious in the past. My eating disorder, I used to be 105 kilos. Marrying my childhood sweetheart, who I've known since I was 12. And then getting divorced after 25 years together. Starting a new life at 40. Also happy to talk about anything you like from politics, religion, more widely contemporary stuff, what it's like to be 40, clubbing, rave culture, therapy, mommy and daddy issues, being a father to twins, divorce, work-life balance, running a company... Oh. <laughs> and then I was oh my like, god all of that stuff <laughs> I am so excited for this conversation <laughs> so should we start with how you grew up yeah 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 um so i i guess it's not that orthodox but it's like when you don't know anything different you just think like everyone does this uh, it's not crazy or anything but i was born in in the uk in london i lived here till i was five um where in london uh northwest london a place called kenton in, in like harrow it's like up the metropolitan line um sort of uh, sorry very niche london reference there yeah. um well because we're sit for audience context we're sitting in brixton we're sitting in brixton yeah. this is in like south i don't even know southwest i think so yeah it's a bit out of the way it was quite a sizable jewish community at the time certainly so that was sort of the environment i grew up in um when we were five years old, we moved to Israel. Um, as a slight aside, I just thought because my parents fancied a change and my dad's family were from Israel. I discovered years later that my dad's business actually went bankrupt. So he wanted to sort of uh, have a bit of a change of scenery. So there were like other reasons behind our, our relatively abrupt move to, what to was Israel. Um, he was like a toy manufacturer, I think, or something like that. He always did random different jobs and slightly different businesses. He wasn't like running away from dead. No, he wasn't. I don't think there was anyone coming after him. I think he was just a bit embarrassed about it. I think mm -hmm. he was just like, London's, you know, can be a tough place to live. He's a very proud guy. It's not unusual for Jewish people, particularly in the sort of modern Orthodox religious-ish community to what's called make Aliyah, which really means to go up where you move to Israel. It's quite a common thing. So it wasn't thought of as that unusual for a modern religious Jewish family in the UK. This is like 1985 to go to move to Israel. In fact, lots of friends of, of mine 
after uni have moved to go and live in Israel. Um, lots of people I know live in Israel. It's almost like an aspiration for any good Zionist growing up outside of Israel to almost aspire to go and live in the sort of home country. So from that perspective, it's not unusual. It sounds a bit more random maybe when you don't know the context. But I was interested yeah, years yeah. later to find there was like, there was another subcontext. It, it wasn't just because they were like, you know, good Zionist Jews. Also, but my dad's family, a lot of them did live in Israel. He moved there when he was younger as well. His mum was there. So it wasn't like such a, a random thing to do for us. Um, so yeah, we moved there when I was five. And had he always, so his family was from Israel, but had he grown up in London? Uh, not quite. So he was, again, these are all things when you're little, you think, oh, this is normal. But my dad was born in 1948 in, uh, in Khartoum in Sudan, which is the capital of Sudan in North Africa. Um, again, I thought that was usual for lots of random Jewish people to be born in Sudan, but actually Lots of Jews came from the, the Middle East, North Africa, but Sudan was a really small Jewish community. So it's quite unusual to have Jewish people from Sudanese background. Wow. How long had his family been there? So his mum was born in Sudan. His dad was born in Egypt. Um, and they came over like, I don't know, 100 years early. I think his mum's mom's parents, if you like. So but yeah, potentially his grandma was even born in Sudan. They, they do go back a bit, but, but his dad, his father, um, was from Egypt. And he actually came to Sudan as an arranged marriage to marry my grandma and take her back to Egypt. So this would have been in like, I don't know, 1930-something. Um, huh. So that's so the background. Sephardic. So that means we're Sephardic, yeah, which literally means Spanish, but basically people who come from the sort of like Orient Middle East. It's kind of a funny story as a tangent because my grandma was 14 when she got married to my grandfather in Sudan in about 1945. Um, so a hundred years before that, where had they come from? Yeah, so, so they'd been in Sudan for a while. Previous to that, I believe, and this is all a bit unclear because lots of things in my family are unclear and you kind of like, don't ask these questions and later on in life, but I think I had a lot of family that came from Italy. So if you follow like the history of the Jews after like the Roman exile, if you like, <laughs> we go all the way back when they left Israel back then and moved into places like Babylon, which was now Iraq and Persia, which is Iran and all those different areas. And then into Spain, most of those Jews went to Spain, which is why they're called Sephardim, because in Hebrew, Spain, Sepharad is Spain. So they came, they're Spanish, but actually before that, a lot of them came from the Middle East. What happened is a lot of Jews went to Germany, which is the Ashkenaz Jews, and then the other Jews went to Spain, which is the Sephard Jews, if you like. They all initially came from the Middle East, you know, way back when. Really? Even Ashkenaz? Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, with the original Jews, if you go back to biblical, you know, I'm I'm not a I, I'm not really I'm not a believer anymore. But um, if you go back to biblical times, you know the the Jewish people were formed, if you like, in Egypt when they were slaves to Pharaoh and all of this kind of stuff. A lot of that is based on historical facts. A lot of it is is sort of you know uh, adapted, if you like, for uh, based on biblical stories and things. But ultimately, the history of the Jewish people comes from. Israel and in and around Israel without getting too political about that, that that's obviously why there's a big issue at the minute with Israel Palestine whatever so my family were part of those uh, as all the Jews did who moved into I guess Europe I think lots to Spain lots to Germany and then from Spain they spread out some went to Italy Netherlands places like that 
Um, so lots of Sephardic Jews come from those parts yeah. of the world. And I think my family was Italy, and then Italy to Egypt, and Italy to Sudan. <laughs> wow, and they would have gone to Sudan done for like business opportunities trade business yeah egypt had a huge jewish population and one of the biggest alexander the the great synagogue of alexandria one of the most famous rabbis in history maimonides known as the rambam in jewish he's also he's also a big philosopher in islamic culture he was the chief doctor to the uh whatever he's called the the king of egypt or the sultan of egypt or i'm not sure what the right terminology is but there was huge sort of jewish populations in places like cairo alexandria um, and they all followed the Silk Route, you know, it's very mm. similar to, I guess, people from other Eastern backgrounds mm. for through, you know, a lot of people end up in India and in Bombay and in places like that. And my family, not entirely sure how they ended up in Sudan. It's a good question. Um, but they did uh, on, my, on my grandmother's side. My grandfather was more from Egypt. He thought he was coming to Sudan to get his trophy 14 year old wife, who, by the way, was also his first cousin. <laughs> Which again, these things sound normal when you're like a kid, but it's a bit weird now. Um, and they would were orthodox. So yeah, I mean back then there wasn't really orthodox. Like, I don't know how deep we get into the different denominations of Judaism, but everyone was pretty much orthodox until Germany in like the eighteen, uh, I think like the nineteen hundred eighteen nineteen hundreds when the more progressive reform Judaism was if you like, developed out of the traditional shackles of traditional Judaism, if you like. But the Eastern uh, people, and certainly people going back pre-1800s like or whatever, everyone was all, you know, there, there, were, there weren't these different types of denominations, yeah. really. There was just Ashkenaz and, and Sephardi. But so they would have been kosher and she... Um, I'm not sure. I think over the years, these things, I mean, someone... Were, we, I, we didn't come from a religious rabbinical family I don't think there was a lot of adherence to the kind of strict letters of the law I think they did Passover seders they pr- I don't know how easy it is to be kosher in Sudan in the 1920s 30s did, did they slaughter their own animals or did they get it from a lot you know I, I wouldn't have thought I, I don't think my dad my dad certainly didn't grow up with any religious knowledge training and didn't grow up religious where that fell away I don't quite know at some okay. point it would have got diluted over the years so your dad so he was born in sudan so he was born in, in sudan in 1948 because interestingly my grandma who wasn't so up for this wonderful idea she she put up with marrying her 14 year old first cousin who sorry she was 14 her much older first cousin how old was he but she was like fuck that i'm not going back to egypt with you and she insisted she actually ran away at one point when they were trying to get back to egypt <laughs> She insisted on staying in Sudan with her family. So unusually, he then moved to stay with her and her family in Sudan. And that's when my dad and his brothers and sisters were all born in, in, in the Sudan. How old was she when she started having children? So I, she was, yeah, 16, 17, I think. And how my, old was he? Um, it's a good question. Like, I'm not that much older, five, six years older, I think. Okay. Something like that. And the, so then how did they end up in the UK? Um... So in 1965, I think it will take, there was a civil war in Sudan, which is still seeing the remnants of now with the massacres in Darfur and things like that, where basically there was an Islamic revolution. I think the Islamic population 
minority kind of like revolted against the uh, the black population. I'm not 100% clear on all the history and the politics, so please don't shoot me if I get any of the details wrong, but there was a civil war. As ever, when there's war, the Jewish population suffers. There was also, around this time, Arab nationalism building up with the wars between Egypt and Jordan and um, the newly formed State of Israel, which formed the year my dad was born in 1948. So Jews in Arab countries were at severe risk uh, all over. There was huge exodus, massive fleeing and war and conflict. That's, you know, a lot of those Jews moved to Israel. So as part of that civil war, my family were not safe. So they were very wealthy, I believe, in Sudan. Um, I've seen pictures of, like, you know, owning land and having sort of like property and things like that. And it's one of those stories... Um, I know this is a, a traditional sort of stereotypical Jewish business back then and one which has received a, a lot of like racist attention and things like that but I think my great-grandma was a money lender and she was some sort of political influencer um, this is unusual for a woman in that time obviously as well she I know local politicians used to come and see her I think she was quite wealthy she donated to parties and she was her opinion was considered quite important she was a real my family is a real matriarchal family, particularly on that on that side. So my I know my grandfather was a mechanic, so he didn't have that kind of he didn't come from wealth or anything like that. Um, but yeah, they fled Sudan in like nine, between about 1964-65 and 1966-67, literally with the clothes on their back. Like you know, there's stories of having to wear all their expensive clothes, all their jewellery. You know, shove their rings up the backsides and literally just like flee with everything. And then they left in stages. So my the kids went first. So my dad and his th- one brother and two sisters went to live in Israel on their own for a few years. The parents followed shortly afterwards as well. So it was interesting childhood and obviously a bit of trauma there. Huh. And then from Israel, your dad moved to... So then my dad, yeah, I mean, a bit unlucky, really, because he fled a civil war in Sudan only to arrive for another war in Israel in 1967, which was the sixth, the sort of quite famous six-day war when all the Arab countries uh, were, were at war with Israel. Um, so he was enlisted into the army almost straight away, lived in a kibbutz for a few years or a year or so. Learned, I think he spoke a bit of Hebrew, learned Hebrew, learned a bit of the culture, and then straight away was enlisted into the army. A kibbutz is one of the communities where you... Yeah, they're like the sort of old Soviet-style collective farms and they were... Israel Israel has got a sort of like socialist background and a lot of the founders of Israel came out of Russia and things like that. So the idea of these collective farms were very popular in Israel. In fact, at one stage in the 60s, 70s, it was really popular for English people, not just Jewish people, to go and do like a year off living on a kibbutz and... It was sort of considered a sort of, you know, kind of a social... A bit like you go travelling to Peru now, like in the 70s, you might have gone to a kibbutz for six months and worked on the land and it was all kind of, you know, all a bit jolly. Um, So that wasn't his experience. He was plonked in like this... bit like a migrant centre here. I mean, my family are refugees, so he was a refugee to Israel, like a migrant centre. They were in kibbutzes because they had lots of land uh, where they could house people. Um, not lots of land but there was space and they learned Hebrew and they kind of like became Israeli citizens he enlisted in the army because what would they have spoken before uh, so his yeah good question so him, Arabic is his mother tongue still to this day um, and has he told you all this <laughs> so yeah I mean this is like you pick up in bits I mean yeah a lot of this has come from him from my uncles 
my grandma, I guess, uh, my cousins. Or has it been your interest in the history that, like, was it kind of forced into you of, like, listen to our yeah, story? Yeah, it's a good question. Yeah, I, th- I think it was just, I don't even know. I think a lot of this was just stuff I was, like, brought up with. Um, we're not a big chatty family sitting around the campfire talking about, there's a lot I don't know. There's a lot of gaps in the information. There's a lot of things which I look back on. I th- you know, does that make sense? I don't know. But yeah, this was just part of my childhood. Sudan was a big part of it. My family all spoke Arabic. Um, you know, my mum, who, who I get to was English, was always like, oh my God, they were speaking Arabic. What are they talking about? It sounds like they're arguing. You know, my earliest memories of like my dad and my grandma and my uncle all just screaming at each other in Arabic, eating like weird food. And, you know, because I was this kid from London who was like, you know, plonked into this environment from time to time. So they were very, very Arab, you know, everything from like eating with it. You know, it was a very Middle Eastern culture. And, and I had this sort of British mother and, and like North African father. So it was a kind of, uh, it was a weird mix. But he ended up in the UK because after the war, like a lot of people in Israel, he thought, well, you know, fuck this. I want to go and travel. He went to live in Holland for a few years. He worked as an airline uh, air steward for Dutch Airways, uh, you know, randomly. Came to the UK, lived in like West Hampstead, I think, around the corner, interestingly, from where I used to live, and then met my mum. I love West Hampstead. Yeah, and then met my mum in, in in London uh, in like 1970s, you know, early 70s. And then did the whole family come over, or your memories of the of your grandma and everything yeah, they was all that stayed. Yeah, they all stayed. My grandma and two sisters stayed in Israel. My dad and his brother moved kind of similar in sync a little bit into the UK. They both lived in London. They both married British women. Huh. And what, and what's your mum's background? So mum is, uh, I guess a bit more traditional Jewish background. In, well, in, from the UK perspective, uh, she was born in Manchester in, uh, like like place called Presswich, like North Man, well, Salford actually, if we're being specific, um, a very Jewish area of Manchester. Her parents were from the South. Her, her dad, my, my, my grandpa, Phil, who's a kind of big inspiration in my life, was born into a very poor, very large family in Stamford Hill. Um, well, obviously there's a very large Jewish community now, but in those days it wasn't an ultra-Orthodox Jewish community, around sort of Hackney way. Now it's full of the tradition, very traditional, ultra orthodox with big hats and oh, Hasidic Hasidic Jews. Yeah, well, Hasidic Hasidism is a sect of ultra orthodox. For being technical, but yeah, um, oh, they're not okay. all Hasidic so, Jews. Yeah, but they they look similar. <laughs> so Hasidic is just famous because that's like some of the big U.S. like the Williamsburg. Yeah, but they're not all Hasids. So again, mm-hmm. we're, I'm being a bit pedantic, but in, in Jewish... No, explain it. I'm super interested. So, again, like, I'm, I'm not, like, an expert in all of this, but... but has, so, that there was... In, in the ultra-Orthodox movement, going back into, like, the 16th, 17th century, there was a split between what's called the Hasidic Jews. Um, I'm loving the tangent, by the way. The Hasidic Jews, <laughs> and I think what, what are called the Mithagnim, and I'm not sure the English translation for that, but I think that basically... One is spiritualist and one is like more traditionalist. And this is in Eastern Europe. This is all in Eastern Europe and like Russia is. So they're They're all like, yeah, this is all Ashkenazi. Yeah, pretty much. It did cross over a bit into the Sephardi later on, but there was a huge rift in Judaism between Hasidic Jews and I think they're called the Mithagnim. So we call it spirit. Hasidic is, is a kind of like spiritual 
really extra spiritual Jews versus the ultra orthodox Jews who are more traditionalists. One was a bit happy clappy and one was a bit like, let's get down and study the text and just focus on the literal, okay. not the literal, but let's focus on the hardcore studying aspect of Judaism. The other ones were like a bit more uh, into the spiritual side of it. Interesting. Okay, so if you see someone with the curls... Yeah, they're called the... p- p- payot in, in Hebrew, but the curly curly yeah. sideburn thingies. Because <laughs> it's something the Bible says, don't cut the corn. Yeah, don't there's a biblical the passage about not cutting the corn. Yeah, exactly. You need to sort of keep that part of your hair long. And then the hat, the fur... Yeah, like, well, the, the hat is a whole different... Th- I, we could spend two all. hours talking about the different hats. <laughs> You know, so careful but, <laughs> where okay. we go on this. But, but, so if you yeah. see someone like that, you can't just assume you can't assume they're, they're Hasidic, Hasidic Jew. Yeah, you could say they are Haredi Jew, which is the Hebrew for basically strict. I.e., they keep all the laws and extra, and they don't fuck about. I mean, these guys. You might say fundamentalist, but that has kind of terrorist vibes. <laughs> but um, strict, ultra orthodox, and Hasidism is a big but as part of the ultra-Orthodox. A lot of the ultra-Orthodox guys and women you see walking around Williamsburg uh, in the US, uh, obviously, uh, Stanford Hill, Hackney, Gold is Green. Yeah, if one is being strict, they're not all Hasidic Jews. Seven Sisters as well as their community. Yeah, that's all around there, around Tottenham. But that's where all the Jews initially came. So now they're all the ultra-Orthodox Jews. But before they were Jews living in, like, you know, well, everywhere, from Hampstead to Richmond to... Kenton, where I was brought up, and all different parts of London, a lot of them started out around Stamford Hill, which is where my grandpa, they, they weren't religious, they didn't wear the black hats, they didn't have any of that culture. They were just uh, refugees slash immigrants coming from Russia, largely. So they're Ashkenazi? They're all Ashkenazi, yeah. So my grandfather, my mum's side, was his dad was born in Warsaw, which was Russia, but now Poland. His mum was born in Paris. Uh, they met in the UK. Uh, neither of them were born in the UK, but they were. Uh, you know, my grandpa was born in 1920, so his family moved over in the 1900s as part of the uh, the, the immigration or you know, fleeing the pogroms of Russia, basically, which were the which pogroms are for people who don't know um, around the uh, 1800s, 1900, 17, 18, 1900s, Russian. Uh, uh, um, purges, if you like, not purges is the wrong word, uh, ga- uh, organised violence by local populations of Russians against Jewish communities, looting, burning, beatings, killings, that kind of stuff, to try to you know, drive out or harass the Jewish communities of Russia. If you want to know more about this, watch Fiddle on the Roof because it's kind of a fun movie. I've seen the. You've seen the movie. I, I think you saw it on Broadway. Everyone likes the songs, but the subtext to it is the Russian Cossacks beating the shit out of all the Jews, which is why they flee, and that's why when one of the daughters falls in love with a Russian, it's so. So there's these small Jewish community. Well, no, sorry, very large, but but closed Jewish communities living all across Russia, and gradually they were all driven out of Russia. Not all, but there was actually still to this day lots of Jews in Russia, but a lot of them were driven out, moved to the US and the UK in like the 1800, there were several waves of pogroms, 1800s, early 1900s, um, and my family were part of that. So they arrived, my great grandpa Judah in like 1901 or something arrived in the UK. My great grandma Rosie came from Paris, not sure what drove her family from France, 
to the UK, actually. I don't know that story because uh, there's a large French Jewish community and, and that wasn't harassed in anything like the same way. It was in the Second World War, but, but not in, in, in this time. Um, so that was how they, on my grandpa, my mum's father's side, ended up in, in the UK. And then my grandma, my mum's side, they go back quite a few generations in the UK. So th th they were here. My great-grandpa and my great-grandma on my mum's side were all born in the UK, which is kind of unusual for British Jews because people don't often go that far back. Um, wow, so you're like an original British Jew. Well, one out of four, <laughs> if you like, <laughs> to take my great... So my father wasn't born here, but on my on my other side, I've got two great-grandparents who were born here. So I'm a mixture of of... British, I guess, like going back a little bit, but also quite foreign, which is, by the way, a bit of a story of my life, which is often like being a bit of an insider and a bit of an outsider and not being quite sure where I fit because my family is a mixture of sort of being insiders, but also outsiders, which is not untypical of a lot of Jewish immigrants, e even to the, even to this day. Mm. That, sorry, that was my question before about Ashkenazi's originating like, so that's way back. Because because oh, it's like, isn't it like you can kind of tell if someone's Ashkenazi or... Spot? It's hard. I mean, can you tell if... I, I mean, you probably could, but I'm, I guess I'm half and half if you count my family. Most people see me with darker skin, relatively darker skin. We're talking like, obviously we're on a podcast here, but Mediterranean, like people think I'm Turkish, Italian, Greek. You know, a lot of people don't, you know, I get the whole, oh, where are you from? Oh, I was born in London. Oh, where are you really from? Really? Yeah, all the time. What? Yeah, all the time. Just, you just, just look in Brixton. Like a regular white guy to me. Yeah, <laughs> I get it all the time. Uh, I I get it mostly from black and people of color. Interestingly, maybe because they feel they can say it to me, whereas white people don't. Just the other day in Brixton, we were chatting to this guy by the station, and he was like, "Oh, where are you from?" And I said, "London." He said, "No, no, where are you really from?" Huh. And I said, uh, "Egypt." And he goes, "Ah, I could tell." <laughs> Why did you say Egypt as a joke? Because oh, I just. I didn't know if you'd heard of the Sudan and to explain my to explain my family history is complicated. So my, my skin colour is probably yeah. it has an Egyptian it's probably most more Egyptian than anything, I, I guess. I don't know. <laughs> okay. So that's covered <laughs> a lot of stuff that is actually not that much about you. So back to you moving to Israel when you're five. Yeah. And how you grew up. So I moved to Israel when I was five, which was, um, I guess, kind of traumatic. Like, you don't think about these things, but, you know, you're, you know, uprooting your life and your friends and all the rest of it and sort of go to a foreign country where you don't know anyone. Uh, a lot of my childhood, I guess, in Israel, I, I was like the British guy. And, and like when I then later on moved back to the UK, I was always a sort of, you know, Israeli, even amongst Jewish community. I was never quite comfortable where I was, if you like. I was always something else. Um, so moving to Israel, even though there are lots of Anglo people living in yeah. in Israel, whether they come from like South Africa or Australia or America, you know, Israel's a real melting pot of Jews from all over the world, particularly like the English speaking world. But still, you're in a different country, different language, different school system, and it was a yeah, it was a bit of a. Were you in Tel Aviv? No, we started off in Jerusalem. Um, at and then we moved, it's too religious a bit, like Jerusalem's a pretty hardcore religious city. And then we moved to Netanya, which is a seaside town, nicknamed Britannia, because lots of 
British Jews live out there. So my family felt a bit on more the comfortable. Red sea. No, Red Sea's way oh, down sorry, south. Sorry. Yeah, oh, it's on no. the Mediterranean. It's it's about an hour, I'm not even half an hour drive from Tel Aviv, forty minutes north of Tel Aviv maybe. Okay. So uh, Israel's teeny tiny. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, I've, I've been to Tel Aviv, Jerusalem, and you wouldn't go to the Red Sea. No, I've been to the um, I've been somewhere on the Red. What's the place on the Red Sea that Elat? Yeah, Elat. Yeah, yeah. So Elat's a okay, little coast, no. a little seaside holiday resort. Natanya is. Then a, you cross into Jordan. Yeah, it's like a port. Uh, t- I don't know. Haifa is a big one. I think it's got a port. I don't know. It's like a, a coastal town. Lots okay. of British Jews have got holiday homes there and that kind of stuff. So, so yeah, we lived there. For, so even within Israel, I've moved around. I've moved houses already twice in in London between the age of naught and five. In the same area. Yeah. So and then Israel was my, uh, Jerusalem was my third house, and then Netanya was my fourth house. So it was a lot of moving around, I guess, in my childhood. And how long did you stay there? Um, till I was, I had my tenth birthday. I remember back in the UK. We moved back in 1989, I think. So I was, well, I was 10 in 1990. Uh, and this time we moved to Manchester, not London. So you had to learn Hebrew when you were in? I had to learn Hebrew, yeah. Yeah, I didn't speak it. I was only five, five six when I went there. So yeah, I had to learn Hebrew. And you just went to a normal I Israeli went to, school? Uh, yeah, I, I mean, there's a bit of a theme of moving around. I'm not entirely sure why. I went to like three different schools in five years in Israel. I think four, actually. Why? Um, well, first of all, which I remember really fucking hating, was because the, the system, the schooling system, starts a year later in Israel. So I, I just left nursery. I was like five in England. You're in reception. You're in big school. I then had to go back to nursery in Israel because they don't move into big school until their primary school until they're six. So I remember being absolutely furious that I had to go back to nursery. And I was like, t- I'm tall, you know, people in the podcast can't see, but I'm, I'm pretty tall, like, you know, six foot three, you know, 1.89 meters. And I was bigger than everyone. And I'm back in nursery. I, I actually don't have that many child. There's a lot about childhood I don't remember, interestingly, but I remember being furious about that. Um, and then I changed schools like two or three times in Israel because the first school I went to, I mean, my parents didn't have a fucking clue, right? You know, they're in a different country. Israel is a bit of a wild west, particularly back then everything's different so they just put me in a school that was near where we lived I remember having to take like three buses or two three buses to, I mean I was seven years old getting like three buses across a, like a major city with like a million people it's like nuts when you think about it you know I've got kids and you, you, know, make, you make them text you they're, they're teenage girls and if they don't text you when they're at the bottom of the street you have a shit fit and like you know I'm like seven years old crossing cities on buses and you know it's kind of mad but we then moved to another school which was nearer but then my parents wanted to move out of Jerusalem because it was the area was a bit too intense and too religious so I moved to another school in in this place called Natania so lots of different sort of school environments do you have siblings I've got a younger sister yeah yeah um who I mean how much younger she is five years younger than me Okay, so she would have been... Um, so she was born just before we went to Israel. It's kind of an interesting story there as an aside. She was actually adopted because um, my mum couldn't have children after me. So we lived in Brazil for a little while before I went to Israel. Not not for long. I actually can't remember how long. Maybe like six months in Brazil. How come? Because that's where my sister was born. Wow, so you, you found the... How does that work? 
again, it's one of these things where you sort of take it as read, like, I don't even, I, I, so my parents, all I know is that, you know, one minute I'm in England, next minute I'm in Brazil and I've got a sister. <laughs> um, um, so yeah, I think they went for an adoption agency and yeah, I think it was a few of them, they, they knew some other people who'd also done the same and they adopted a, a basically a homeless, you know, someone, if she was home, she someone who was whose mother wasn't able to look after her in in Brazil. She she was a baby when she was adopted, and so they felt like we should stay with her in Brazil. Well, I think they had to stay for a while to do all the paperwork. You can't just rock up in Brazil on holiday for a week, pick up a baby, and come home. So, <laughs> which are the things you think about when you're a kid. But like, so we had to stay there, and like, there was like I don't know. There's a lot of admin and. I think they had to wait for her to be born. I think they adopted her. Bef- I think they knew they were adopting her before she was born, but the exact time frame. I'm, lots of things in my family. I've got a high level overview, and you might wonder why I'm not more curious. But I, I have a difficult relationship with my parents. I guess on some of these things. And when you're younger, you don't you take it for granted, and later on in life. Um, but it was all very open. I mean, like you know, it was my sister knew she was adopted. Everyone knew it was. We talked about it. It's very much owned, and they handled that. I think. My sister might have a different view, but I think they handled that very well in terms of it being... It was almost so normal, I didn't even think to ask any questions about it. Um, but yeah, we were in Brazil for a while, and then like six, three, three or six months, three to six months, I can't quite remember exactly, moved to the UK, and very shortly afterwards, uh, went to live in Israel. So she... Yeah, wow. So she's Brazilian, but grew up in Israel. She's but Brazilian. It's born in Yeah, born in Brazil. Bit of time in... Yeah, exactly. She had a Brazilian passport, I remember. I'm, I'm sure it's expired now. Wow. Um, so yeah, so she's got like an interesting story there. But it was all very like owned. It was very much talked about. It was like never seen as a taboo. It was, you know, it was just very much like, yeah, she's my sister. She was just born in Brazil. And then why did you move back to the UK? Um, so my dad found it difficult to, as, as I understand it, again, he asked too many questions when, when you're 10, but I think he found it difficult. He always said it's a tough place to work Israel. It's a tough place if you're Israeli. My dad wasn't actually Israeli because he only, you know, he was actually Sudanese. He was Arab, if you like. And then Israel's a, it was a tough place. I think he had a job there. It's a totally different industry after the business in the UK uh, didn't work out. And I think he just really struggled. Israel's a tough culture. It's quite aggressive. It's pretty hard if you're not um, like in the sort of hardcore. It's yeah, a bit different my, now. Well, my kind of feeling was it's like New York, but like, or this is Tel Aviv, that's like New York, but like even more intense. Like if you think, it's like you literally get like pushed out of the way on the street. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that, and that, I mean, it, so Israel is the most caring, kind, considerate, loving culture you'll ever experience. If, if you, in the UK, if you fall down in the street and bang your head, like 25 people will step over you before anyone bothers to help you. Not in the UK, in London. Yeah. Like, I've been... No one gives Not a like shit. New York. Uh, New York's like no, similar vibes. Like, but London, I feel like people help you with like your luggage. On yeah, the tube maybe or that. But I mean, I, I was talking to someone the other day actually, a client who came to see me for a meeting. He was twenty minutes late because he had to call in an ambulance for someone who'd fallen over, and he said like she'd been sat there for like fifteen minutes and no one had helped. Actually, and if my mum's listening to this, she did fall over on the street in London and no one helped her. So, obviously yeah, it's not and by the way London is very different to the UK as a whole mm. and even London's got different parts to it mm. but generally speaking you know yes that kind okay. of like big city London New mm. York but 
Tel Aviv isn't like that. You know, if, if people, people are very, not just Tel Aviv, Israel, but Tel Aviv because it's the metropolis. They're very kind of caring like that. But in terms of like doing business there, working, it's tough. It's aggressive. Everything needs to be yesterday. It's a ball-breaking sort of place to work. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. I remember I worked for an Israeli, a manager where I was working in New York was Israeli. And it was like, I would, it's just like on a call with a client he's just like abusing me for like yeah well I mean like in a business meeting they'll tell you you know like that's fucking you gotta sort it out but then like oh do you wanna come around for dinner and like bring your wife bring your kid like we'll make a dish like how are you is everything okay and if something happens to you you get like you know the you know if you were ill they'd be round at your house with like chicken soup and a meal and you know so it's kind of like a, it's a it's a tough working culture, but it's a very warm, nurturing. And again, maybe you're talking a bit generally, as the country has adapted and developed, maybe it has become a bit less of a sort of community feel. I mean, Israel today is borderline on civil war at the minute. If you if you read the news and stuff, but um, generally speaking, it has that kind of warmth about it. But in a business context, it's hard. I don't know exactly why they left. I mean, maybe there's something I don't know, which wouldn't surprise me with my family, because, you, you know, you never quite know. But, yeah, when I was 10, it was like, yeah, we're moving back to England. I'm like, okay, we've just got settled in Israel. Now we're back Now we're back to the UK. All right. Um, so were you sad to leave? It's hard to remember. I mean, I, I've, I, 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 I've thought quite a lot about my childhood, like when I've had I've been in you know, on in and out therapy, just trying to like get a few things fixed in my head the last few years. And obviously this gets talked about a lot and there's a lot of gaps in it, but I do remember crying on a bench when we were told we were leaving Israel and moving back. But that could have been when I was told we were leaving England and moving to Israel. Either way, yeah, I, I think it was hard. And then when I arrived in the UK when I was 10 in Manchester, cause my mum, so I, I just couldn't quite get on it before, but my grandpa moved to Manchester with my grandma, who was from the from London, actually Essex, and they had a very successful business. My grandpa in Manchester, and my mum was born in Manchester in uh, 1955 or whatever, and, and they settled in Manchester. Um, what was the business? He um, started out like you know it was like you know twelve of them in a tiny little bed sit in Stamford Hill, and him and his brother kind of were market traders. They sort of hustled their way up to basically founding one of the biggest like supermarket cash and carry chains in the UK um, which was uh, went through different different guises but they, they they took it public on the stock exchange in like the 70s or something like that and you know they did I'm not sure what's left of it I think a, a lot a lot was down down in the casino I think my grandpa actually opened the first casino in Manchester as well uh, there's a joke about you know I, I don't know usually the house always wins I'm not 100% sure if that's the story of my family but, um, he had a good time my grandpa certainly and worked hard and was very successful um, and so yeah my, my mum was born in Manchester and her family her brother and you know and, and London is a pretty difficult place to live and work even today and obviously they tried it in London didn't quite work out tried it in Israel didn't quite work out so Manchester I think mum was a bit homesick so we moved to Manchester was your mum working or not in Israel no she didn't speak Hebrew (laughs) um she wasn't working in Israel she worked in did she find it hard well, she did, but the kind of family joke was that you think mum would find it hard and dad would be all right because he was fluent, he had lived there, but actually dad found it harder. Mum actually had, I think, settled into a kind of like 
I mean, it's a kind of nice middle class, like, you know, stay at home mum vibe in a nice little seaside town. I think she, she, she kind of quite liked it. Lots and of English made, people. Oh, okay. She yeah. Had All our friends were expats. Friends. It was a nice, we had a really nice, that was probably our most like affluent time actually, ironically. But then I think dad's job didn't quite work out. So then, then they came back. Um, so she had a quite a nice, it was a nice life. It's like, you know, living by the sea and a nice country club we used to go to. Everyone was like English speaking. Just dad having to go into like the city and like, you know. What was he doing? I think he was working for a shipping company. Again, he's done like, bits, you know, slightly different random jobs. But he worked for a shipping company, I think, in, in Israel, which was hard, I think, for him. Okay, so then you, so then, if your mum was enjoying it there, how, or he yeah, was I think like, Dave was like, a... I can't, I can't. I don't know. I mean, did, then... he, did he even lose his job? I don't know okay. exactly. Um, but they ended up in Manchester. Yeah, he ended up in Manchester. Like, I don't. Yeah, it's, it's, it's maybe it's, maybe I lost. So it's funny. I, you may think I'm on curious. I just no, uh, no, I find it quite hard to talk to my parents. Is the truth. And after a while, like you know you sort of don't really ask anymore. <laughs> but you know so much, I would say you know so much more than the average person about their ancestry. Like, yeah, it's it was amazing. interesting. I might be able to trace my family back further, but like, <laughs> basic question, like why did we leave Israel in 1990? Yeah. It's yeah, but funny. people don't ask these things. Yeah, you don't. It's almost weird to ask it when you're 14. <laughs> Dad, by the way, I mean, I could do, maybe it's a conversation. Maybe I'll ask him next we time I see him. We could get him on the podcast. That, that was... No, but this, this is like me talking to my dad on the podcast. It's like, I learned things, but then also like my mum learned things. Yeah. Or, and for other people, they've said that, like when they've listened to their partner or who they're being married to for however many years. And they're like, wow, I had no idea that about that thing that happened, you know, in their childhood, because why would you ever do what I'm doing yeah, <laughs> like yeah. someone talk to you for an hour yeah, about their childhood yeah no t- t- totally um, so yeah so we ended up in Manchester um, which in hindsight was great because I love I actually feel more Mancunian than anything even though I've only lived in Manchester for full time if you like eight years of my 42 years and even though you don't really have the accent I can put it on <laughs> I can on. put it on oh, no, too much pressure um, I've got to be surrounded by my Mancunian mates but um, yeah I know my well that's the thing like in Manchester when I arrived in Manchester I wasn't seen as a Mancunian I was seen as a Israeli I was this funny dark skinned like who the hell are you and Manchester was a kind of closed community as well I said not closed like it was pretty insular and like Jewish communities can be quite insular not necessarily in a ultra orthodox way but in a kind of like they they hang they stick together and within manchester the mancunian jews like distrusted the london jews and i guess even more the south manchester jews didn't like the north manchester jews um and even within south manchester there were different communities it sounds a bit ridiculous but everyone's a little bit you know a bit insular so i kind of rock up as this like you know tall fat dark Arabic looking Israeli foreign you kid. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was pretty fat for most of my most of my life until, until I was about thirty five or so. I know you again, it's on a podcast, you wouldn't pick people are like that. Yeah, I, I I lost no we can get into that, it's another conversation, but yeah, and I lost a lot of weight in my late thirties. So I you know, when I say fat, I was just this big, very noticeable I wasn't like obese fat because I'm tall and whatever, but I was just this like big fat dark <laughs> and I just you know I, 
I was very noticeable. I was always getting in trouble for school. You know, 20 kids were talking and messing around and, oh, Cohen, you! I'm like, what the fuck are you picking on me? Because I'm taller than everyone. I was just a bit louder. So, I, it was, I, I felt very like an outsider. It was kind of, like we're in a therapy session here, but no. <laughs> anyway, it was weird because I was like seen as this Israeli, but then like in Israel, I was seen as the English guy. And then also the whole Sephardi Ashkenazi thing is quite a big deal when you're a kid. Like when everyone is European Ashkenazi, even the food and things like that. And the, my family were a bit different. And Wait, so were you at a Jewish school? So I went to a Jewish school for like a year, and then I then it was secondary school time. But it was a tricky time because I joined right at the end of primary school. And when everyone's doing their entrance, 11 plus entrance exams and things like that in the UK when you're 11 you kind of sit tests if you want to go to like a grammar or an independent school or you move up to a state school if you don't do the exams um, but either way it's a big transition period so I kind of got dropped into that my English wasn't amazing because I've lived in Israel for five years so it was yeah, quite a lot of adjustment what yeah your accent was like did you kind of have a I think I had probably a generic southern accent because I learned to speak English in London although my mum's Mancunian my dad's got a slightly funny ish foreigny I mean he refuses to admit he's got a foreign sounding accent but like he definitely doesn't sound like he's native British so my accent was a bit of a mess but it was still because you were still speaking English at home. I was speaking English at home, yeah. English at home, Hebrew at school, English at home. So it's more your Hebrews accented. Yeah, well, I didn't have an Israeli. I didn't. I didn't have an Israeli oh. accent or anything. So um, I'm imagining you weren't that great at Hebrew, but maybe you were. Yeah, no, I was. I was. I remember when I moved back to the UK. I thought in Hebrew. Hebrew was my first language. Wow. Yeah. I was, oh, because you just absorbed it at school. Yeah, that, those ages, it's just like, you know, it's, yeah, I spoke Hebrew with my friends. Most of my friends' parents were um, uh, immigrants to Israel from English-speaking countries, but we all spoke Hebrew, the kids. Interesting. Yeah. So then I had to then adapt to then speaking. I used to translate from Hebrew to English. So did you have a bit of a... Yeah, so that's what I'm wondering. Did you have a bit of a... Israeli accent. I, I didn't pick English. up an Israeli accent. You've got to really be hardcore Israeli to have an Israeli accent. <laughs> a, lot, a lot of Israelis who speak fluent English. No, because I, I still, you like, still, I had a yeah. I had a sort of generic southern, soft southern accent, I guess. was. But my accent now, like, does, I'm, I'm living in London, I spend mm. my time with mm. a lot of people um, either who aren't British or who are from, from London. When I'm with my Mancunian friends, if I go into, like, watch my beloved Man United or listen to like my Man United podcast I like there you go cast you see like I do set podcast like I do, I do have a few little northern twangs in there but like depending on who I'm with like my my accent adapts a bit based on who I'm with that's something I've always learned to do partly fitting in and having to sort of adapt myself a bit to my surroundings but my default is yeah kind of a generic I enjoy telling people I'm from Manchester because they're like what <laughs> um yeah, I did love okay. living in Manchester though. So you were at, so you were at a Jewish primary school. I was at Jewish primary for like a year, and then I went to a uh, like an independent uh, secondary secondary school, uh, which was you know there was like a few Jewish kids there. It wasn't like there there were one or two which were more Jewish if you like a higher percentage, but you know there was like I don't know like ten Jewish kids in my year out of like a hundred or something. Um, and yeah, it was just like a, a regular. Actually, it wasn't a regular school. It was a fucking weird school. <laughs> it was whatever. Like it was a regular, a regular sort of 
Why second is it weird? I just, I don't know. I just look back on it. It was like, there's some fucking wrongings that went to that school, I tell you. Like, I don't know. I look back on some of the people I went to school with and like, it was a bit, it was like, how do I describe it? It was kind of like privileged, but not super smart people. Because it was a private school. It's a private school, so it was like fee paying, but it was like the second or third division, if you like, of the private schools. I, w- I tried to get into like the best private school Manchester Grammar and there were two tests. I passed the first test, but I failed the second test. And I was a bit upset, cause, but I was like, well, I haven't only just moved into the UK. Like, it's kind of hard to pass 11 plus. It's a lot harder now. I've just gone through it with my kids. But, you know, so I was like, I didn't give myself too much of a hard time over it. And he said I had to pass an exam to get into uh, this school. It's called William Hume. But it was just like, the way I describe it was that, because I changed schools for sixth form. I got into the best school for sixth form. I was really pleased with that. Um, that was like the highlight of my academic achievement, by the way. I was like, I'm still still dining out on that. But um, William Hume was like, you, you got teased for, for being smart. If you mm. knew the answer, you got like, you know, the piss ripped out of you, as would say in, in Manchester. You know, you got teased for being, you know, a geek, goody two-shoes, clever clogs, whatever. Manchester Grammar, you got teased if you didn't know the answer. <laughs> you got teased at both, but it was just a different, like, uh, so it was kind of a bit rough. It was also mixed school, which was interesting. I hated going to school with girls. They were fucking terrifying. And not not in the way that you think. Not in like, oh, I can't talk to girls. Because I had, like, quite a lot of female friends, and I've always have done in my life. But some of these girls fucking beat the shit out of you if you looked at them the wrong way. I'm like, I'm not talking about, like... Uh, it was just, it, it was really run by, like, a real tough core of like mean girls who like you know would they, they were like the bullies of the school a lot of them and they'd bully the shit out of a lot of the boys as well like and I felt like really intimidated not because oh, I can't talk to a pretty girl it was like or whatever it was just like literally physically <laughs> scared of something. it was not it was a it was a pretty tough environment I, I kept myself to myself with a couple of mates and I, I you know there was danger on every cop, but this is like in theory a posh private, you know, and it was just interesting because it wasn't Sorry, like. Were that. they like, were girls physically beating people up? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. There's this one girl I won't say her name. Um, my year who like literally should like if you looked at her the wrong way should like chin you, wow. which is Mancunian for head. But you know she was tough. Like yeah, I, I, you know there were boys or bullies as well, of course, and I'm sure some of the girls, looking back, maybe they probably felt that some of the, you know, I, I, it was a bit of a toxic culture, you know, they, maybe they were defending themselves against other people, whatever. But it was a definitely, a, for a, what what should be a sort of like posh private school, <laughs> I mean, was like, not like private school versus state school means you should get beaten up or not, obviously, you know, hate mail coming now. But like, <laughs> Um, you know, it's just funny. I'm just looking back as a parent where you think like, oh, you know, you'd want to send your kid, you know, if you could afford it to, you know, you wouldn't expect to pay all this money and, and have, and also an academic culture that kind of rewarded mediocrity as well. Uh, like when I left to go to Manchester Grammar, my, my housemaster said, you'll be back within three months. Like, you know, don't go there. You're not smart enough. You're going to fail. Like all this sort of stuff. And it just made me go, oh, fuck you. I was like the first person to, I think one of the first pers- people to move from, I mean, if we're talking about like 100 year history to move between the two schools, like to kind of like go up a level, if you like, and they tried to drag me down. I think one other guy did it and I don't think he even lasted two years for sixth form at Manchester Grammar, I think. 
Huh. Um, so, and I went to, it was an all boys school, sixth form, which I loved just being, I mean, it was also brutal, but I, I was a bit traumatized from going to school. It's like, I, I, I don't know, it felt, I, that said, I, a couple of my best female friends actually, one or two of them friendly with to this day, were at that primary school with me as well. So I, I never had trouble making friends, whether girls or boys, but I just much preferred the, the, the single sex environment as a boy. It just felt like we've changed. But I think that's partly because William Hume was such a rough school. Interesting. And was that where you met your ex-wife as well? Uh, it was around that time. I met her when, no, well, no. Actually, oh, she I, wasn't. I met her really nice. So she's she from, she's from Newcastle. Um, so from the northeast of England. And we met when we were 13 um, because I used to go on like a Jew camp. I call it a Jew camp. It was a, a Jewish youth movement. You, have you seen American Pie, you know, this one time at band camp? It was like this one time at Jew camp. Uh, and it was like, we used to go. And it was like a huge, you know, it was a huge part of my childhood. I was like massively into this Every movement. Summer. Yeah, it was called BA, B'nai Akiva, which stands for the Sons of Akiva. Akiva was a famous rabbi. Um, in the sort of like Talmudic period around the Roman uh, occupation of Jerusalem in like the sort of, I don't know, first century or something. Um, and it was a religious, modern Orthodox Zionist youth movement, AKA Wait. Brainwash Central. <laughs> Can you define Zionist as well for us? Yeah, so a Zionist is someone who basically believes in, that's a really who who is, he loves, uh, and wants to support the the state of Israel and believes like it's Jew, Jews have a responsibility to live in Israel and to support and uh, and do everything possible to kind of make the state strong and secure, and as a, 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 a it's a homeland for the Jewish people, that's basically Zionism. So the whole ideology of B'nai Akiva BA was be religious, believe in God, move to Israel. It was like a factory for people to move to Israel. <laughs> Because they believed that Jewish people had an obligation to go and live and settle the land of Israel and uh, that's where Jews should rightly be. Which is basically Jewish religious thought generally believes that. Um, But this was like a kind of a a modern take on it. And it was very pro-Zionist. And believing that um, Israel should be a religious state? Specifically? Should should be a, a... state run on the principles of the Torah, which is like the Jewish Bible, if you like, not a fundamentalist. So very much democracy, rule of law, equality, to the extent that you can have that with a religious state, not fundamentalist. So it, again, we're getting into the denomination of we talked about the Haredi or the ultra Orthodox Jews with very strict interpretation of the laws and the black cat, you know, that's not what B'nai Kiva was. B'nai Kiva was modern Orthodox. So you can be in a modern, living in a modern uh, world, very comfortable mixing between secular and religious. Yes. Taking the best of both. So like having full education, full secular education, the sciences and the arts and everything like that, but also having a strong religious education as well. So they wouldn't like Israel as it is now because Israel's... No, I'm the... the, 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 Well... Because someone explained that to me, one of my um, Jewish friends in New York was saying again about because I was so interested in the Hasidic community in, or maybe they're not Hasidic but in Williamsburg yeah and he got annoyed at me for asking him because he's like 
I'm not like those people. But, and he was saying some of those people, like they don't agree with yeah. Israel because it's not religious yeah, enough. Yeah, so it's not religious enough. So for the B'nai Kiva youth movement, modern orthodox, Israel more or less philosophically is, is, is where it should be from a religious perspective. The ultra-orthodox are not Zionist. A lot of them, again, you can't say the ultra-orthodox. It's like more than 50%, I think. I mean, it's a huge part of the Jewish community they have very different views it's not homogenous at all more than 50 percent globally uh well the thing is they have 27 children okay i'm joking but they, they have lots of children and they're the ones who are keeping to the religion like not lapsed jews like me who, who i are, thought it's like a kind of no it's, mind not, no, it's like 10 percent in each well do you remember, yeah we had like remember we had the chat the other night actually over dinner we were talking yeah. about the stats um can't quite remember, but it's a big, it's a big percentage, and it's growing, and it's growing fast. Really? Uh, yeah, and in Israel, in America, in the UK, I mean, it's not beyond the realms. In hundred years, it's going to be way the majority, like it, it because they they stick, they keep but, to the religion, whereas like everyone else is 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 lapsing, I guess, from that perspective. Okay, but so that'd be the majority of religious. Jewish people, but not of. Well, soon it'll be know, soon it'll be the majority of Jews because the more Jews intermarry, the less the children become Jewish. You know, it, it dilutes that way. Because. Because they're not. If they have if they Jewish. have ten children and they all marry Jewish and have Jewish kids, and everyone else has naught to one or two children, and half of them don't marry Jewish, and then they don't have Jewish kids. You know, the law of demography is that. One's going to go one way and the other. So Israel will soon potentially be, and it already is dominated very strongly in areas like Department of Education and things like that by the ultra-Orthodox. And there's a huge rift in Israel between the ultra-Orthodox Haredi Jews and the uh, the secular Jews in Israel. Massive, uh, massive rifts. Because that's a um, point about Judaism and why I really like it, how you can be culturally, you can be Jewish but yeah. an atheist, so you can be culturally... Yeah, which is basically with, how, you know, how I see it. But tell that to a, Hare- a fundamentalist Haredi living in Israel and they would like, you know, that they would, I, I'm a sinner, I'm a heathen, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm worse than a Gentile because I'm a Jew who doesn't even... But that's like a lot of people in... Oh, because my, yeah, one, this friend in New York was also saying like a lot of... um his family member like they were modern orthodox but like went to yeshiva the jewish university yeah, like yeah. Pro- properly kosher yeah like, yeah that, that, that's been a kiva right exactly you go to yeshiva but you wear jeans <laughs> but he <laughs> was saying the less the people who don't want to play you know you're set up with a um matchmaker you know you're it's like you can't have sex before marriage like because within the modern orthodox you have the most religious modern mm. orthodox and you have the least religious and there's a massive range yeah and israel is getting more and more but it's a split between the religious and the secular in israel and the religious is split between different groups as well and the secular split between different groups so he he was saying those because they are like very religious in New York so he was saying the less religious people in their family who didn't want to you know who wanted to eat bacon and not wait till marriage to have sex and whatever they would then move to Israel where they could be yeah well that's true but they could have moved to like you know the Upper West Side as well but you know (laughs) or any other part of America where you can be much more progressive but so yeah, it's, so in terms of the Zionists, then there are ultra orthodox Jews who there are there are ultra orthodox Jews who hate the state of Israel, who align with like Palestinian terror groups because they believe that the state of Israel is an abomination because it wasn't set up with the 
with the Jew- Jewish first principle with with the with, with the Torah biblical yeah, first principles. Because it's technically secular, right? It's a sec- like even it's the I- IDF, secular. like I can join the IDF. Yeah, it's you can like, you can go and Christians, eat a bacon Druze. Big Mac on a Saturday whilst yeah. like you know doing the most non-Jewish things you could possibly imagine in public in Israel and like you know Tel Aviv's the gay capital of the world, you know all of this stuff. Now there are big splits between Jerusalem and Tel Aviv and things like that. So Israel is not a fundamentalist country at all. It has lots of very strict people who do dominate certain political groups and who have control of certain ministries. So, for example, public transport. You can't get public transport in Israel on the, on the, on the Saturday, on the Sabbath. Not Where? official public transport, buses and stuff. Now, really? they, might, they might have changed that more recently, but in my, when I lived there, you couldn't get a bus on a Saturday in Israel. Huh. There was all this like weird stuff. like You couldn't farm pig in Israel. I, knew, I met one guy who literally built a farm on stilts and the pigs used to stand on the little stilts so they weren't technically on the ground. They were off the ground and he managed to bypass the laws of not pig farming in Israel. Crazy huh. shit. And again, I'm, I'm, I'm a bit out of date with some of this now. The point is, there were lots of religious rules stuck in there. But other, and it's, it, it's a bit like you, you can't get married secularly in Israel. If you want to get married not through the Jewish faith in Israel, you go to Cyprus. <laughs> Um, what really? Yeah. You can't get married secular in a church. Oh, um, I, I, wait, think, no, I think you I probably think could you, in a church, but you, you have, have to have like a religious a Christian if wedding you're Christian, or an Islamic or Islam, wedding. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you can't have a secular humanist wedding. Sorry, yeah, yeah. Israel okay. is incredibly tolerant of all other faiths, by the way, which yeah, is yeah, yeah. interesting. You know, it's much easier to be Christian. One of the best countries in the world is controversial, but you know, as a free secular Muslim, you know, take take aside issues of but you know in terms of like it, it is a comfortable place for all religions to exist yeah well which, jerusalem is the four quarters yeah right? yeah the christian quarter the muslim quarter jewish, jewish quarter. and then the, you know, the fourth one's so random isn't it Do you know like, i mean I, the armenian armenian, armenian yeah. yeah 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 really interesting the, the armenians get a quarter i mean they, they got fucked over by turkey and had a big massacre there which is probably going to offend all my turkish I actually got one Turkish friend, two. Um, but yeah, the Armenians they get a, they get a quarter of the old city of Jerusalem, which is kind of random. <laughs> well, not so, random if you if you study it, but interesting. Um, random point going back to you saying like about having all the children. That's what one of my Australian Jewish friends said told me at one point, where he was like, "Why do you want to know why Jewish people are smarter and more successful than?" like Christian people in general or why they Jewish people that. are very oh. like successful wow. business people in general and okay. more intellectual well yeah, yeah. Okay. okay getting politically incorrect here. yeah tiny um, bit but it's alright <laughs> well who yeah okay. yeah what did he say though no but okay Jewish people are generally very like yeah, you give those yeah. data to yeah well no, no actually oh, well but then it gets into I'm the gonna end. be the woke one can I be the woke one for once because yeah, I'm I'm normally the unwoke one with the woke well that's not true but depending on my friend groups I'm either woke or unwoke if the younger ones I'm <laughs> compared to like my older friends who are my age from school like they look mm. at me I'm like a sort of borderline Greta Thunberg. Whereas, like, if I hang out with my, a lot of my friends who are in their 20s and 30s, obviously my views are a bit more so. It's funny. But I'm um, sorry, finish off what you're saying and then we can sorry. unpack that. <laughs> <laughs> well, he was sa- well, I don't know if it's more a joke or how much. Yeah, but go on. Is, but he's saying because traditionally the rabbi is 
the smartest person in the community and the priest is the smartest. So this is like comparing Jewish people to Christian yeah, people. Yeah, so the rabbis so the, are smarter, what, smarter than the priests or something. No, no, no. So the rabbi is encouraged to have like 20 children. Yeah, the I, I see. Yeah, priests yeah, yeah, can't yeah, yeah, have yeah, yeah. children. Or at least... Yeah, I would definitely season. question the rabbi being the smarter <laughs> one. I would absolutely. But that, that's... But yeah, like... Okay, so there's a couple of things there. The reason why I bristled a bit is... is well, and this is interesting. There there's is, all the anti-Semitism I mean, with the, Hollywood. Not right? all Jews are clever. Not all Jews are rich. Not all Jews are, you know. Uh, there's a, there's this kind of a bit of a joke where like, got two Jewish guys. I'm going to tell this joke badly, but the message is there. Like one's reading the um, Jewish Chronicle, which is like the Jewish daily, like weekly newspaper in the UK, and it's like, oh my God, it's so terrible being Jewish. I mean, there's anti-Semitism. I mean, this synagogue got firebombed, and this politician has said something anti-Semitic, and this person's this TV presenter has said something and oh my god it sucks to be Jewish everyone hates us and he's like what are you talking about the other guy's reading the times he's like we control the media we control finance we control politics we're all rich it's fucking brilliant being Jewish and you know ultimately the stereotypes are there Jews are disproportionately successful based on their number that's a fact that doesn't mean every Jew is clever that doesn't mean that every there are more Nobel Prize winning Jews per capita I think than any other group etc um, there is a concentration of wealth in the Jewish community. There's also horrific poverty. Go around in the UK, places like, we talked about Stamford Hill, where my grandpa came from. Um, now, I mean, you know, it's not a wealthy area. Go to parts of Israel, America, there's like real deprivation. And, and, and you know, there was a big article in the Times last week about um, illegal Jewish schools where, like, you know, they're kind of like rat infested hovels taught by people who don't have any. Uh, you know educational background so there's massive inequality and it's definitely and there's also every type of economic demography within the Jewish community and it and it is a bit of a trope that because what why that's important is that there's a huge amount of anti-semitism against Jewish people has always has been probably always will be one reason why people don't take the anti-Semitism seriously is they consider Jews to be powerful and rich and successful and therefore they're not really, okay, fine, yeah, people are bad anti-Semitic, but it's fine because you've got a big house in Hampstead, so deal with it, right? As opposed to you live in a town, you know, a council flat in Brixton and because you're black and whatever. So, obviously not all black people live in a council house in Brixton, but like the, the perception is that, you know, <laughs> black people in Brixton may not be as successful economically as Jewish people in So therefore, we shouldn't feel as bad about anti... If there is some prejudice doesn't really count because they're not really a minority they're not really a, a, a deprived minority so that that type of language is really really important um that goes back all the way to like you know tropes about jewish people being i talked about my great grandma being a money lender well some were and they were for, anyway all that said there's a very interesting book about this by the way if people want to read jews don't count by, by david Badil, which brings us into the forefront uh and a lot of the issues around jeremy corbyn and things like that and around you know, I can't be anti. I can't be anti-Semitic. I don't have a racist bone in my body because he didn't consider being, you know, anti-Semitic as being racist because Jews don't count. That said, I understand what you're saying. <laughs> and Jeremy Corbyn, who I told you that story that me and your lovely girlfriend yeah. saw Jeremy Corbyn speaking at Cambridge with another person who was like yeah. a Marxist yeah. like pro Jeremy Corbyn yeah. like it was just such a funny situation yeah. but and the president yeah. was Jewish at the president of the union yeah. he was interviewing him and then it was um, yeah it's uh, it's kind of interesting because like we talked a lot about more than I probably thought we would 
because I, I actually wear my Judaism pretty lightly. It's a big part of my life and my history and my story and obviously growing up, like telling you a bit about where I come from, you know, it, it is unavoidable and it's part of my life, but it used to be a much bigger part of my life. But actually now, whilst I don't see it as irrelevant, I kind of like, I don't see it as defining me and I don't see it as as big a deal as I used to, which is kind of interesting, but obviously we spent a lot of time talking about it, but. Uh, obviously there are things there which are emotive to me but at the same time like you know it, it, it used to probably define my identity and then now I think it's just a sort of interesting quirk of my family tree rather than something which is like uh, so significant in my life huh what Judaism used to yeah, define Judaism. Your identity yeah yeah because the world I grew up in being Jewish is everything it's like you know used to have this like question are you a Jewish Brit or a British Jew and I definitely felt like a Jewish Brit for most of my life huh. I was Jewish but I happened to live in Britain because my family came from all over and I wouldn't probably stay in the UK I had aspirations to go maybe go and live in Israel I, I, I was on that kind of like path um less so now at all uh I'm a little almost disillusioned if you like with the whole Jewish community I brought up in it's it's insular ideals it's um you know narrow-mindedness it's the the straight jacket it can put on people even in a small not even in an ultra orthodox that's you know very different you know if you see that tv show unorthodox which was an amazing netflix program about i think in williamsburg a woman who managed to escape i didn't have to escape physically but i had to escape emotionally and ideologically and mentally from that world and that was a pretty tough traumatic even if it wasn't a physical <laughs> escape, if you see what I mean. Still living in London, I'm still like, like you know, I haven't, haven't had to run away. <laughs> okay, I have so many questions about <laughs> yeah. that. But first... I just wanted to say that because, I, cause, uh, you know, I, I just didn't necessarily want this conversation to almost feel like my Judaism. I, I, maybe I'm a bit prickly about it because I have tried to break away from that. And I was just thinking the more I'm talking about it, the more it feels like it is a disproportionate part of my life today even if it has been a big part of my life thus far okay yeah but we've barely got we've barely got into your life yeah. which is why okay yeah which is probably fair in that sense because you know until that point judaism was a big part of my life yeah well i guess we're more just yeah well we we only really oh no we did get up to manchester high school but Okay, two things. One, to clarify to the audience, when I was laughing before, badly timed when you were talking about people living in council flats in Brixton, that is not what I was laughing at. Okay. I was laughing. <laughs> That's been I, on your mind, has it? I, no, but I think I was laughing because it's like, I'm so, it's like, I'm just so grateful to have a conversation where we can speak like fully openly. And I do find. I don't know. I don't know. I'm just going to leave that there. And so I'm grateful for that, for you speaking so candidly. Yeah. And then the second thing is, it's 2.35. We have a lunch booking. Oh my God. Is that the time <laughs> we've, I know. We've already gone for an hour and 10 minutes. Okay. And we've barely scratched the surface. Oh, I mean, I'm happy to keep on talking. I mean, I don't know. I don't know what you want to do. Well, because I'm like, where... I just... Yeah, there's so many more top like we've barely like covered anything that was mentioned yeah. in the introduction. So so I don't know what 
what you want to do because I feel like I'm happy to keep on talking it depends on how how, how long you want the podcast to be no well I'm like we can we can have a natural pause and then come back and record something else or at another time or we because I'm just thinking if we start a topic we'll be here for another two hours (laughs) (laughs) or is there anything you yeah it's interesting again I didn't expect uh, yeah I I suppose it's interesting kind of getting into all of that a lot of that stuff I just oh yeah that's my family tree it's all a bit boring you know let's just like move on and talk about interesting stuff but yeah yeah I guess it's not the most traditional although I guess from from, even when Jewish people it's probably a little bit like weird and wonderful but I guess in a Jewish context it isn't that unusual to have someone with such a different background I guess Mm. yeah but yeah, because I'm so interested to ask you, but then I'll just have a million follow-up questions yeah, about that period about... where you were, then became so religious, yeah. when you did become really religious, yeah. and then yeah. also the whole Well, that does tie in a bit. I guess that does tie in a bit to what we were talking about, if you like, because, um, yeah, I mean, I grew up, like, pretty religious. Like, until I was um, 16... I, you know, as a family, we kept the Jewish Sabbath, which meant we didn't drive, we didn't turn, uh, I mean, we didn't use electricity. I mean, the weird and wonderful world of Judaism is that there's a thing that you do for the outside world and there's a thing that you sometimes do in private and there's a real hypocrisy to it, which is one of those things which later on in life bothers me. So as a family, we didn't officially, you know, watching TV on the Sabbath is like a big no-no. But we kind of, my parents did a little bit schneiderly when no one was looking. And someone would knock on the door, quick, turn the TV off, there's someone at the door. I mean, literally, it's insane. We're talking about, like, you know, in, in relatively recent history. Wow. So it's about, it's about perception. It's about being... Performance to perform- the community? Yeah, performance to the community. Exactly. Exactly right. Wanting to be seen to be something, i.e. an upstanding religious member of the community, but deep down, you know... If you have these, like, holiday rules, you know, where, like, on holiday, you can break the Sabbath and, like, pay with money and you know, do certain things, but you wouldn't do that, like, normally, and it's like, well, do you believe in God? Do you believe in the scriptures or not? Like, what are we doing here? That's where the cultural aspects of Judaism clashes with the kind of, with with other parts of it. And I was brought up in this environment where it was like, we do some things, but not others. And then it's like, well, why do we do that and not that? It wasn't immediately clear. None of this was really based on any deep uh, intellectual study of, like, the scriptures or the Talmud or anything. So it was a real kind of keeping up appearances, but I, I was brought up into that. But ostensibly, we were religious. And in my, like, teens, like 12, 13, 14, 15, I became more religious myself. I wore, like, a kippah on my head all the time. I wore these tzitzit, which are, like, the sort of prayer, like a shawl you the wear underneath your, to- your underneath your clothes, and you have the, the strings sticking out. But even that's, like, a look at me, I'm so f- from, which means religious. It's a very much a look at me religion. Okay, it's not as a it doesn't have to be the way it is adopted by lots of people is a very much it's like anything where, where you could be a bit holier than now I was compared a bit to COVID right look at me with my mask yeah well fucking done you've got a mask like, or like, I keep all my you know and other people oh my god the next door neighbour they had there was a rule of six but they had seven people come through let's call the cops that's literally what it's like growing up Jewish it's like oh look at them you know the Coens went in the car on the Sabbath and they're not meant to and like you know Everyone's judging everyone. <laughs> There's like a real aspect of that. Huh. In your community? I think in lots of communities, in my experience. I... <sighs> okay. Well, yeah. Well, because I'm just thinking back to um, New York, because it was, yeah, the analyst group. 
it's I always make this joke about diversity how people talk about diversity and I was there in finance working in this it's not only where there no women no other women no other like non-white people everyone was also Jewish <laughs> yeah. except me so it was yeah. like white male straight Jewish yeah. men but yeah. so they had varying like this was my peers so they were all varying degrees so some were just like atheist but Jewish yeah. culturally yeah and then but then the religious the more religious one maybe this obviously small sample size but it was like more because yeah my friend wore the prayer things under his yeah, but you wouldn't t- t- I only it's cool yeah. yeah but he wasn't proud about like I like obviously you can see his yeah. wearing the kip up yeah but they would do, do their praying so like the prayer room where yeah. have, like 11 men have to meet or yeah whatever. 10 but yeah exactly okay. yeah and it was yeah. like very you wouldn't know about they yeah i mean about it, it does so first of all i don't think the native people are like native mm. people have the same exact jewish mm. outlook philosophy i mean maybe there's like you know broad similarities but mm. every, everyone is very interpreted different there were mm. so many there were 613 laws in judaism right you know, maybe some people, I mean, some, the ultra-Orthodox try and keep them all. No one keeps everything in exactly the same, you know, there, there is just naturally some divergence. Mm. And whilst my experience is a bit cynical, and me personally, my part of my personality, which is an extrovert, show off a bit, look at me, I don't really like that side of me, but I, I'm aware that I have that. Being religious is an absolute goldmine of look at me, because it, it gives you the chance to put... and. I actually, I don't like that. About, and maybe I'm projecting some of my own uh, issues with How it onto other so people. Because that... of course there are humble, I mean, the most famous Jew of all, Moses, was famous for being humble. I mean, you're meant to be humble. Like that is a Isn't massive Jewish part. The mo- Isn't Jesus the most famous Jew? Oh, good question. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Right. But we don't, we don't count him. He lapsed. He went, actually, it wasn't really his fault. It was his disciples. But yeah, he, most people don't consider Jesus in the Jewish faith as, as being kind of, you know, top 10 or top 20 and you know he's <laughs> he started his own party <laughs> so, okay so you were quite proud about it oh my school. god I, I was I, I sometimes wore Jewish clothes because and it wasn't just as a show off I was proud I was like yeah I had a bit of a fuck you element as well when there was anti-semitism I was so proud of my Israel roots when there was like you know issues with like Israel-Palestinian conflicts when people were scared to wear the head covering the kippah, I wore it, even if I didn't deep down really probably ever believe in God. I just felt very proud about being different and I'm almost like, you can't bully us, fuck you. I'm going to wear my, my kippah in public, even if people are scared to. Because I have that aspect of me, which is a bit of a sort of, I'm always, I'm my kind of like, I do have a bit of, <laughs> wanting to stand out a bit, I suppose. So I use my Judaism, um, but also, People do lots also use it in a more cynical way as well. And at the same time, there's some of the most amazing, kind, humble people who do so much in the background, so much behind the scenes. They wouldn't even like talk about any of the, any of the good things they do, whether it's charitable deeds or whether it's like really religious piety. And they would be horrified to get any attention. They certainly wouldn't do a podcast <laughs> talking about it. Um, so, and, and as a philosophy you're encouraged to be humble. I mean, the highest form of charitable giving in Judaism is where they don't know who's received it and you don't know who it's given to. It's not sticking your name on a hospital in New York City, right? You know, that's great. Yeah, wonderful. But if you donated anonymously and it was received and given anonymously, that is considered. So there's a very difference between Jewish 
core principles, some of which I, I know I really do abide, um, and the kind of, I guess, the flawed human interpretation and adaptation of those, which <laughs> a lot of which I can't abide. Uh, human nature often gets in the way. Yeah, and that can be for anything, right? It can be Absolutely. for... I mean, again, with Izzy, we taught at um, Cambridge, this was a thing with being vegan, how it was like... Exactly. It's the same shit, COVID, vegan, environmentalism, virtue signal, you know, holier than now. It's just human nature. So I I don't have... I I do have lots of issues with Judaism and organised religion, but that is, like, not specific to Judaism. I think if I had to pick one, I think, you know... It's almost like democracy is the least best, you know, the, the, the least worst system of government. I probably would say Judaism is the least worst organised religion. So if you really felt like you needed an organised religion, it's pretty good. I don't feel like I need an organised religion and I don't like what organised religion stands for. But I do understand and respect a lot of the principles of Judaism as well. And a lot of the people who implement them. So, you know, there's obviously a bit of a dichotomy there. Um, and I don't necessarily believe it's all, you know, throw the baby out with the bathwater, but the concept of growing up in a kind of traditional environment where you are expected to live and do certain things in a certain way, uh, you know, looking back in life, I find problematic because it gives it narrows people's options and it makes them realise that they, uh, you know, it, it makes people, I mean, let's talk literally, you know, getting married very, very young, having children very, very young, living in sort of closed communities, all these types of things, you like, you think it's normal and you look back and you think, well, how was I possibly able to make that kind of free choice when I was pushed that way? At the same time, everyone has to take their own individual responsibility. So I wrestle a lot with to what extent was I responsible for my own actions as an adult. Obviously, I have to take responsibility. To what extent was I pushed into something because of the culture and society I was in? And, you know, that's something that I wrestle with a lot. I think people have that in society generally. Women have to have children. Men have to want to have children. Getting married is considered the ideal. Having a partner is considered the ideal. Is it? Wait a minute. Like, who says that? And some people find it easier to break out and live a more alternative lifestyle. For other people, that's incredibly difficult. And that's hard enough anyway in society. It's even hard enough in 2023. Um, But living in an orthodox traditional Jewish environment it's even even harder and and that, that aspect of it I, I do sort of rebel against that if you like huh it's so ugh, it's so interesting because that's what I was gonna say before which is the total opposite of what you're saying is like the fact that we can can have this discussion so freely and the fact that you're like, yeah, my diversity on this podcast is not doing well in the way that like 40% of the guests have been Jewish for some reason. But I'm like, I think it's because the freedom to have these conversations and like question religion um, and question even just have these intellectual conversations about life and meaning and whatever. I find that... Um, Jewish people I guess seem to be more or I don't know if it's like an interest thing they're more, they're... I, I think it's possibly one of those like self-selecting pool I think by nature of how you are obviously you know we you know, haven't known each other a long time but you know getting to know each other 
like reasonably well and hopefully it gets noticed even better but I think probably like if, if you were to go out into the Jewish population as a whole and pick a complete random sample or, or, or indeed actually more of a targeted sample someone from an ultra-orthodox Hasidic someone from an ultra-orthodox traditional someone from a Sephardi Ashkenazi old young you probably have much wider spread I think possibly just by nature of age Cambridge Uni living in London you know you're going to attract probably people who maybe have a, whilst not an entirely similar outlook, probably not as diverse as you get across the spectrum of Judaism. So I've got lots of Jewish people who would sit here and be horrified by what I'm saying. Others would think like, you know, something completely different. Um, if you had someone from a more traditional background, they might be like, yeah, but the family is so important and like keeping the Jewish principles is critical and we're a small faith and everyone's trying to kill us. So we have to stick together. And how can you even think about marrying someone who's not Jewish or growing up and not Jewish and like Jewish laws is the most important thing in my life. You know, all, a whole range of things from cultural people. How could you possibly not have a Passover Seder? What's wrong with you versus like, how could you even think about ripping a piece of toilet paper on the Sabbath? Cause that's not allowed. Wait, why can't you rip toilet paper? You can't rip on, on the Sabbath. You can't so tear. you have to have pre-prepared so toilet. I'm, I shit you not. When I was going through like various religious phases in my life, and like uh, in my thirties, I kind of like discovered it again, and I, I went a bit like mental religious. My wife, like, uh, uh, still technically my wife, but we're now separated. I mean, like she, she's traditional and she's quite religious, but she thought I was a fucking nut job which I probably was, I used to, on a Friday before the before it got dark, literally go around the house ripping toilet paper so that I had something to wipe my ass with because you can't rip toilet paper. Now, if you're smart, you buy the pre-ripped rolls from Tesco. You can buy pre-ripped? You can buy pre-ripped. For basically, but... Well, no, it's just like tissues, but it's like toilet paper vibes. <laughs> Honestly, you don't even want to know the, st- the level of minutiae that you go into. Ripping I a toilet paper. No, a, an ultra-orthodox person, if they ripped a piece of toilet paper on Shabbat, they would literally think they'd go to hell if they did it on purpose. Yeah, so I'd, I... Like, they would... If I ripped a piece of toilet paper in front of uh, uh, thousands of Jews, <laughs> they would literally go mental. Hmm. Like, you can't even imagine. Yeah, well, I would be um, interested in getting someone on to... I do. I have a friend from Cambridge who was from an ultra orthodox background. So yeah, I've got a few friends I could. Yeah, would they do the podcast and talk? One probably would. Yeah, someone I used cool, to work but with. But then that's also not doing well for my diversity. No, metric. no, but at least it's diversity <laughs> in the Jew. Yeah, you have a, a Jew. We all know Delia, an honorary Jew, Jewess. So, um, yeah. Anyway, it's interesting. But yeah, so so and like yeah and. They will say different things. Some would say, well, you know, you do you and me do me. And I believe living this way is important. I believe in God and I believe in the literal word of, you know, how it was passed down or it's not entirely literal. Because actually Orthodox Jews don't believe the Bible's literal, but we can get into that another time. <laughs> like they believe it as an interpretation of it based on the Talmud. So not everything in the Bible is literal. Some things are. It doesn't say thou shalt not rip toilet paper. It says rest on the seventh day. Yeah. And that is taken to mean... There are 39 things that you can't do on the Sabbath. Including carrying. Carrying's the one yeah, I find so Yeah, but again, so it doesn't even... Some of these ones don't even specify... There are thousands of pages of the Talmud dedicated to interpreting the laws of Sabbath. Um, hundreds, maybe thousands. Did you? So did you learn I all this then in your this. really religious yeah, period yeah, in your 30s? Yeah, I, I went out of my way. But I kind of did it partly because I, I like studying and I like learning. I also did it because I'm a bit of a show-off. 
and I enjoyed knowing a bit more about this stuff than other people, which is like something I could admit, but at the time didn't see, which is one reason why I'm a bit uncomfortable. You know, as I said, that aspect of it about, you know, being knowing a bit more, it's a bit like a lawyer who knows the law better and uses it to show off a little bit. But I, I was interested as well, but I also kind of liked the idea of knowing a bit more than, than maybe the average. So how are you showing off now in your... <laughs> I'm got... doing a podcast here, that's how. <laughs> no, but have you kind of got that out of your system? Um, no, maybe not. I think I'm always an extrovert. Uh, how do I show off my life now, you mean, if I don't in a religious yeah, way? Yeah, because in, in a toxic way, because I yeah. haven't seen... No, I, 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 I'm a bit hard on myself about this sometimes. But I, like, I, I wouldn't see, I haven't noticed you acting like a superior person. Okay, so it's interesting. There's showing off and there's superior and, and the two aren't the same. And one thing I work quite hard to do is, is notice aspects of my psyche that can lend themselves to that superiority side, which I don't like and I don't find comfortable in myself. And it, that's often, you know, as with Ember, it's to, you know, there's insecurities in there. You do a bunch of therapy, you get to 42 years old, you learn a bit about yourself. You understand bits of yourself that you don't like and how you can change and how you got there and things like that. So yeah, I, I, I don't, I, I have worked hard and I don't think I have too much of that side of me anymore. And where I have had it, I've understood it and I've dealt, tried to deal with it to the extent I can. I'll channel it in a more fun way, you know, and and therefore I do have an extrovert side to me, which rather than like being embarrassed about, I kind of own you know, come out yeah. with me and Izzy on a Friday night to a nightclub and you might see our more extrovert side come out in terms of some of the clothes we wear and things like that. Um, obviously aspects of social media and Instagram and, you know, things like that. At Mark Cohen PR. Um, on my <laughs> but no, like, but, but the kind of the, the, the religious bit really brought out that superiority bit and, and was it me or was it the, you know, it's a bit of both, definitely my personality. But yeah, I, I've tried to sort of kick that aspect out of my life because and I think it was really mainly shown in that regard I don't know why more than others maybe because I went out of my way to I probably knew disproportionately more in my social group about Judaism and Jewish law than let's say I did about like history or about like you know politics or whatever so maybe that was something I could like feel like I now me compared to other people who spent two three five years in a yeshiva in a Jewish seminary I would be like the ignoramus in the room, you know. So, but uh, again, it's all relative. But I did use my Judaism a little bit in that way. Uh, but yeah, but now what you're talking about is more expressing yourself, mm, which is totally, totally that, different. Well, that's exactly. like me doing this podcast as a way of expression. Exactly. It's not like I'm better than someone because I'm doing a podcast. I've learned the difference, uh, I guess, yeah. as part of myself and, and my Jewish practice lent a bit more to the superiority and not my expressing myself because I wasn't really who I was it was mm. a bit of a show whereas now when I express myself absolutely whether it's doing a podcast whether it's being creative or like people are performing or whatever they might do I mean I do a lot of public speaking as part of my work like LinkedIn activities and things like you know all of that stuff about pro that there's a balance between yeah. healthy self-promotion and healthy promotion for a good reason and also just expressing yourself and just doing something you like uh, versus doing something that's a bit maybe done for superiority reasons, I guess. And so with dressing, are you... Yeah, because I guess there's a difference as well when you see 
someone <laughs> walking down the street, it can be like a fuck you, I'm dressed like this too. Because yeah. I want everyone to see that yeah. like, Argh, I'm different and I reject society versus yeah. someone who's just like, oh, I'm like exactly. into really dressing. I like having a tattoo on my forehead because yeah. I think it's a beautiful art and whatever versus like anyone can do one thing in the motivation. And the reality is there's often a mixture of these things and people don't do things for one just for one reason alone there can be elements of it and any only an individual can understand their drivers um but i wasn't maybe they can't understand well maybe that only an individual only each individual has the capacity to at least theoretically understand yeah into their psyche exactly (laughs) but um but yeah that was like certainly one aspect of the judaism that i practice other parts of it were just i was expected to do that it was Mm. part of i didn't think there was anything else to do if you like i also thought it would make me a better person actually as well i mean i when i rediscovered orthodox judaism later on in life again because i went through phases of it um i thought actually you know if i follow these rules these rabbi dudes back you know two thousand years ago i mean some you know they, they actually knew some stuff i mean some of the teaching in like the ethics teaching so a lot of what comes out of the talmud is is, is absolutely genius and if you can live that way genuinely i mean it is an amazing way to live the problem is if you try and take that you know first century ce mentality into the 2023 i mean i'll give you an example right you know men are supposed to go to synagogue three times a day right including in the evening there's a bit of a joke about that you know there's a there are three uh core prayers in judaism there's the morning prayer shaharit there's the lunchtime prayer which is called mincha and there's the evening prayer which is called Ma'ariv, right? And the forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in theory, instigated all three of those. Abraham did the morning prayer, Shacharit, Yitzchak, Isaac did the uh, lunchtime prayer, and Jacob did the evening prayer. Jacob famously had 12 tribes and a girl, 13 children, right? All the others had one or two, give or take. So the joke about, of course, Jacob instigated the evening prayer because he had 13 kids. He fucked off during bath time when he was supposed to be at home with the family. You know, instead he was in synagogue. So there is a tension between being a modern parent and like sharing the family responsibilities, whether it's cooking, cleaning, obviously going to work and doing household chores and looking after the children and being a traditional religious Jewish man where you're expected to be in synagogue at certain times of the day. That is a natural tension. Just an example, I have lots of arguments with my wife around, oh, you know, you're going off to synagogue when you should be here, you know, doing bath time and whatever, which is understandable. So trying to marry progressive modern living with a first century Jewish philosophical thought, mm. the role of women, all that type of stuff. I've got two daughters and how do you explain to them? On the one hand, they would go to a school which tells them they could do or be anything that they want to be. Uh, on the other hand, you know, they have to sit, you know, at the back of the synagogue and they're not allowed to participate in uh, in daily prayers they're not allowed to lead a service they're not allowed to do all these types of things within a synagogue environment and this is 2023 in central London they go to school a posh Hampstead girls independent school where they're literally told they could be rock- you know anything is open to you anything and everything and they have an amazing kind of like feminist modern progressive like good balance as well with, with the sort of progressive and traditional culture really great school and kids go from that school and they do amazing things. They found companies, they invent stuff and they do anything anyone could possibly imagine. On a Saturday, they have to sit with the women and not the men. 
on Saturday they have to watch boys go and receive like the prayers from the Torah at the front they can't go on Saturday they have to watch the 13 year old boys go and stand up and do things and they can't do that you know they're in a borderline apartheid on a Saturday <laughs> religious um, and apartheid might be a loaded word so a, a segregated religious lifestyle where women are have a different rights and fewer than men but the rest of the week they're expected to you know go off and be the prime minister if they want that's, how do you marry those two <laughs> okay so that's interesting because um a religious friend was explaining to me how because it is yeah so in judaism it's like the men have to do the prayers and yeah. um and he was saying so the men in this religious community they the men go and do the religious stuff yeah men do religious and so, stuff and there's like men devoting their lives to religious study and so yeah. he was saying in how it plays out for some of the people he knows in New York is like it's an ultra kind of feminist relationship because the woman is off like working on Wall Street earning tons of money and the man's that, at that, home that, studying that, Torah that seems just so if you go into this again this is all very different and by the way you'll have religious modern orthodox religious people women probably screaming at the podcast if they listen to it it's, you know maybe they do maybe they, and I've had like arguments about this with my sister-in-law who is very religious and she's like I don't want to do prayers in synagogue why do you think just because it's a traditional man's job that I want to do that right who says I want to do that I love looking after my children I love cooking the Shabbat meal I love making the home that's what I want to do I don't want to have to go to synagogue at eight in the morning why are you forcing me to go to synagogue with eight in the morning why do you think I'm disadvantaged I don't think I'm disadvantaged I'm proud to be a traditional Jewish woman and I'm proud to cover my hair and I'm proud to not do all these things and I want to do that. It's a bit like, you know, women, Muslim women with a hijab, like progressive might say, well, they're disadvantaged and it's like terrible and they have to stand behind the men if they're walking down the street in Saudi Arabia and they're not allowed to drive or they have to cover their hair. But you have thousands, millions of Muslim women say, well, we choose to do this. So obviously there's an interesting thing about, I hear a man telling a woman what she should or shouldn't want to do has its own massive problems. So I, I you know, Anyone who wants to live a certain way, you know, great. But I guess, you know, when you have children and when you think about what makes sense to you, there is a real feeling of, 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 a, of a, an unfair divide there, in my personal opinion. When you then take it into an ultra-orthodox extreme where men spend all day studying, then yes, yeah, someone has to work, right? So they rely on either charity. And by the way, I'd like to see how many ultra-successful Haredi women there are on Wall Street because there won't be many. Right, there may be one or two. But ultimately, yes, women have the ability and in fact encouraged to go out and work, right? But is that is that really about, um, I don't know, I'm not a young woman growing up in this world, but if I was, I'm not sure the idea of my husband spending all day in seminary while I have to go out, work and look after the house and look after the children. Because by the way, it's not instead of. And maybe they have a nanny if they're very rich on Wall Street, but I don't think there are that many Haredi women. I mean, let's get the stats who are killing it on wall street but i've got a friend right she lives in israel grew up with her she's got 12 children i think i've lost track it could be 11 could be 14 fuck they the kids ultra ultra religious her husband studies all day in seminary she's a gp she works i think pretty much full time the kid the older kids look after the younger kids by the way that's once your kid gets to, you see them in gold is green you see 12 11 9 year old kids holding hands with three-year-olds taking them to the shops you know, again, wouldn't be my parenting style, but everyone, you know, each to their own. 
So, and the men are sitting there like, you know, chilling, stuff. okay, they're not chilling. They are doing God's work by learning for learning's sake. And that is how we're gonna bring about the redemption and the Messiah, great. But I don't know if that is what most people would consider a feminist idea. <laughs> Women do everything and the work so the men can study, which is the more ultra view of it. In the more progressive, modern orthodox view, it's no, we share things equally. But how do you do that whilst also being religious, traditional Jew is, is, a, is a real challenge. And I guess that's one of the reasons for me why I didn't feel that religious, traditional, organised Judaism sat well with what I consider to be the sort of, you know, life I want to live in, you know, 2023 and beyond. So interesting. <laughs> I just offended everyone I know now. <laughs> no, but it's good. I mean, and that actually would be interesting if people have thoughts and then we can, because, yeah, I'm just so keen to talk more about the stuff, but, um, and more about like your story. But if people want to say, yeah, what they think, and then we yeah. can talk about it. It's yeah. not like... And the fact is, you've tried... It's interesting because you've tried it, and then you're sharing what you think, but you're also, importantly, importantly not gone extreme the other way. Like, because, you know, there are people who are... And, again, we have a friend at Cambridge who I think was kind of fully in and now he's fully out and it's like Judaism is so bad Israel's so bad and well, it's that's like just another dogma isn't it like you replace it's like the militant atheist and, and I, 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 I can I say I'm a bit of an atheist I mean that's like a very Jewish like you know how can you be a bit of an atheist you know um, there's a joke about you know most atheists you know, most Jews are atheists like obviously not exactly but you know there, there is a cultural bit there's a not quite knowing bit and there's that being aware enough to understand you know that obviously God could exist just as much as God couldn't exist from a pure philosophical perspective. I don't know. No one really knows. You can only go with your view and stuff like that. But people do have a whole different spectrum of where they see, I don't know, God and religion and whatever. And I don't know, each person just can sort of figure out on their own. But I think if you're too extreme one way or the other, I know it's very fashionable today to like have a point of view and die by it. I don't know. that You just replace another form of religious militant, militant, uh, militancy and it could be vegan, it could be environmental, it could be, you know, so-called what culture, it could be whatever it might be. Well, actually, you're just being as fundamentalist as maybe people who you're criticising, just from another perspective. And it's not that popular. I kind of, maybe because of my age, you know, in the 40s, you, you know, you sort of... I didn't grow up with everyone having to be absolutely sure and right and die in a ditch for their views. And I do change my views and I, I do sort of move around a little bit. But I, you know, I can sort of see, I can see a middle ground. I can understand people who want to live a religious, traditional lifestyle. Just for me, it's not for me, but I do respect people who do want to do that genuinely. Uh, I've got, in some ways, I've got less respect for people who, who are absolutely 100% convinced about them being right, whether it's about being religious or, or atheist. That, to me, it feels a bit too extreme. <laughs> yeah. And that's exactly the ethos of this podcast. <laughs> like, not being... Yeah. I don't know how to describe it other than what is, I guess, is kind of influencing the world to see the world. I mean, the small audience that listens to this. Yeah. To see the nuance in things. Well, we don't know. I mean, let's, none of us have got a fucking clue. I mean, let's be honest. We, we all just try our best to... to you know, use our experience and f f do what feels right. And if there's something I guess I've learned is 
is trying to please other people, trying to do things that are expected of you is not maybe the healthiest way to live, certainly not for me. Trying to do what you think feels right for you, but also, you know, try and be a good, kind person in society and what that could look like. And that could look like a religious person, a woman who covers her hair, a man that wears a kippah and a hat and goes to synagogue and that can work for them. For someone else, it, it could be, you know, going raving at a nightclub on a Friday night and going out for lunch on a Saturday and doing other things that they enjoy doing and working hard and being a good responsible member of society and just we're just being bored you know just being plain old average in the middle and just doing what feels good and what feels right but but doing something that I guess is authentic and true to what you really believe and feel not doing something that you think you have to do because of the friend group you're in or the family you come from and it's breaking out of those shackles, I guess, has been a big journey of my life. And I do find it like difficult when I see whether it's, you know, I've got friends, you know, mutual friends of ours at Cambridge we've talked about where, you know, you have to like, if you're not vegan, you sort of like, you stand out. And it's like, well, that is just the equivalent. That is just as oppressive and nuts in my view as, you know, hiding, driving in, but living in Hendon. I was talking to my mum the other day and that they're scared to drive their car in Hendon in North London in 2023 in England in case one of their neighbours sees them on a Sabbath driving right there is that you know I have to do things that other people expect but that is no different than pretending to be a vegan or you know saying you're wearing a Jeremy Corbyn t-shirt even if you don't believe it because you you don't want to look like you're an evil Tory or whatever (laughs) it's just the same type of psyche moved to another context and I think if people you know this is maybe a bit like utopian but if people could just be honest with what they actually believed and felt and just try to be kind and accepting of other people would all be a bit happier and I think we'll get on a bit better and and you know some of the problems in the world may may still get fixed without everyone being mean to each other and trying to box each other in yes amazing (laughs) (laughs) okay can I ask you on that note can I ask you the last three questions because they're kind of well the last question ties in with that yeah cool um, unless there's anything you want to say before we wrap up. Oh, girl, probably so much, but let's, let's, <laughs> let's leave it. We'll have, we'll have um, part two. Okay, so... Okay, so first question is, is there a practice you do to stay grounded? Wow, that's a great question. Um... So a practice I do to stay grounded. Or how do you stay grounded? I don't know. So <laughs> yeah, I, like so a practice. I, I, I kind of, I'm, I'm naturally very self-critical and whilst I am an extrovert and I do come across having a lot of confidence, I, I do doubt and question myself a lot. So actually if I'm, I, I tune into myself and what I really feel, that's how I stay grounded because actually deep down, I do. I was terrified to come on this podcast, by the way. Um, uh, How do you feel now? I feel like I feel good, but I, 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 so I listen to myself because if I if I ignore my inner voice without sounding a bit too hippie about it, then I can easily get carried away with myself. But if I actually listen to myself and I have that feeling in my stomach, which does tell me, wait a minute, who the fuck are you, and who gives a shit about what you have to say, and why you're just lucky to be here, and you've only got this successful business, or you've only got this in your life because it's just random. If I listen to that, that grounds me. So I just tuning into myself and just paying attention to my sort of inner voice, if you like, does a pretty good job of grounding me. 
because actually naturally I do feel that but I am quite good at hiding that and I have been and that's when I've maybe come unstuck with not listening to myself so what does that look like in practice do you like do you meditate or do you just I've tried meditating I just get too bored and I get too restless and like my back gets sore and I get distracted um I I think I think I it's more just awareness. It's just being awareness. It's finding still moments. So often, like, I'm a bit of an early riser, but, like, on a Saturday, I may not get out of bed straight away. I'll lie in bed for, like, sometimes half an hour, an hour. It's not meditating, but I'm thinking. And that's when I can, like, really listen to myself. I journal as well. If I have uncomfortable feelings, I write them down. And then by that expression of journalism, by listening to my, like, sort of inner voice of myself when I'm still moments, if I go for a jog or a run, I never listen to music. I always have quiet so I can hear myself. Probably those three things, lying in bed on a Saturday morning journaling or going for a run is the time when I can allow myself some space to sort of notice that inner voice in me which says, Mark, you're fucking useless, which I do have. And I'm like, no, I'm not. Um, If I do that, that grounds me pretty well. There's nothing worse than your own, like, you know, self-doubt to, nothing better than your own self-doubt to actually ground you a little bit. And that's, I think, what I've learned to do. That's so interesting because I feel like with me and dealing with depression, it's like maybe an extreme version of that. It's like I have so much self-criticism that it actually pulls me like way under. And so it's like the opposite that I have to practice self-compassion more like, no, Dilly, you're not totally useless. Yeah, yeah, (laughs) I can can see it because I've you know definitely got friends who have those feelings but who are deeper into it. And I think I have those tendencies, but for some reason, you know, luck or whatever, it's there almost in just about a healthy way where I can use it and channel it. In the past, unfortunately, what I've done is I've blocked out that voice, not wanting to feel it and doing things that like chasing, you know, like so-called highs, chasing happiness, chasing short-term pleasure, doing things to feel good, feel good, feel good, to ignore any feelings of self-doubt. So that for me is more destructive. And I've been through cycles of that in my life. When I actually just think, okay, you've got that in you, use it, channel it, listen to it. I'm only just literally thinking of this now as I'm talking to you. I've never, no one's ever asked me that. I've never thought of that question before. But I think that's what I've kind of learned to do with a mixture of therapy when I've been in therapy to understand myself a bit better. And also now it's become a bit of second nature. I think that's how I've able to, I guess, try and take the best bits of my personality which is the maybe extrovert more confident aspect of it but also use the the doubt to ground me to you know stop me being a dick <laughs> and make me feel a little bit more of, uh, of this type of person that I kind of want to be amazing okay next question is there a book I'm thinking are you gonna say the Torah ah, Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> is there a book that's had the biggest influence on your life yeah okay so if you'd asked me when I was religious, I would have said anything by anything by Jonathan Sachs, uh, which is if you really want to really learn about um, Judaism and uh, and religion, it's a very interesting. Uh, any of those books, um, you know, uh, uh, not in my name or there's a bunch of really good. There's one about I can't remember. It's got green and yellow cover. It's about science and religion. Uh, it was written in in in, in contrast to. Uh, Dawkins, um, what's his name? Richard, um, Dawkins. Richard Dawkins' book around, uh, very critical about God. Um, I've forgotten the name of that one as well. Um, well but he has a few. Yeah, there's one famous one he wrote. Anyway, uh, anything by Jonathan Sachs, but that isn't what I'm going to say. Probably because I'm definitely on the more secularist humanist side. Anything by Yuval Noah Harari. Uh, those books really. Um, 
Sapiens. Sapiens. Yeah. Um, Who is yeah, Probably the one that influenced me the most was the, was the third one, 12 questions. No, 20 questions. 21st century. 20 no, 21 it? questions for the 21st century. Something, <laughs> something like that. Like that. Yeah. Um, which is very interesting because you've got this sort of Jewish thought, because there is a Jewish thinking aspect of it there, but also a uh, very interesting sort of philosophy uh, from a sort of more humanist, secular perspective. Okay. What? Yeah. It would be interesting. <laughs> well, sorry. They're good companion his, pieces. Re- his relationship is with religion because he's, um, yeah, he's a gay... Israeli. Gay yeah. Israeli. What, one of the things I love, one of the things most influenced me about what he said about Judaism, anyway, definitely <laughs> running out of time, was like, hold on a minute, like, you know, yeah, as Jews were told, like, you know, we think, we like, everything involves around Judaism, we think that Israel's the most important place in the world, being Jewish, he's like, you know, we're just a small group of people, yeah, we've been disproportionately successful, and there's lots of Nobel Peace Prizes, brilliant, well done. But actually, you know, in the flicker of humanity, you and your Judaism is really just a very small part of a much bigger picture. Stand back, have a wider lens, be religious, don't be religious, reverend your Judaism, don't, but understand that in the context of society and your place as a whole. Not quite we're just specks of dust and we're irrelevant in a sort of like nihilistic verse. But like, yeah, your Judaism is there and that's cool, but, you know, look at things in the much bigger bigger picture in the round that influenced me quite a bit to be proud of my jewish culture but to embrace a much wider world as well interesting yeah yeah he's had a few mentions on this podcast but not for not about that more about yeah sapiens people liking sapiens but then it's like there's this controversy about sapiens when apparently it's like all rubbish because he's a yeah i mean from an academic perspective yeah Yeah. the the history bit i enjoy but i kind of liked his philosophy maybe because he's a secular lapsed jew a bit like me Um, and by the way for the complete other end of the spectrum gary neville's biography called red I love that book because he was one of my favourite footballers. Man United footballer. He's a Sky Sports pundit. But the reason I like that book was that he became so successful not because of natural talent, because of hard work. And, you know, he has this thing about, like, you know, it's called work for a reason. If it wasn't called work, it would be called play. It's meant to be tough. You know, he struggled as a footballer. He didn't enjoy it or he had to go out there and really battle. And I've always resonated with people who are maybe more hardworking and have used that to achieve great things rather than naturally gifted people. So that's why he's my favourite footballer and his football sports book is one of my best sort of motivational books. Cool. Uh, I kind of like that. So something a little bit different. Well, probably not many people have mentioned that. Um, But yeah, uh, lots of different books though. (laughs) It's hard to pick one or two. Okay. Just want the record to show that I love Sapiens, particularly that bit that I never stopped thinking about. I mean... That's an exaggeration, but about Peugeot, the example of Peugeot, how it's like a fig, it's like it's a figment of our imagination. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. like money, so money is a figment money, of our imagination. Like democracy, law, like law it's like Britain. Well, oh yeah, how human rights? It's like what does that mean? Man-made There's, constructs. Yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, he was very. Uh, one of the most unfortunate things you should have a disclaimer on here about sapiens is that it really put me off eating meat. Uh, there's like a, a lot in there about like the sentience of animals and the sentience of he, he's a he's a real like a strong vegan i don't know if you remember that but that really traumatized oh. me about about eating meat because i did love eating meat and I actually i tried i even tried to go vegetarian and vegan because i was so traumatized by some of what he wrote 
did, did you gloss that? Yeah, that didn't resonate with you. That's interesting. That really no, stood out for I me. I guess because... I No, that didn't stand out for me. But I guess I maybe view it as like you can... This is a whole nother, another thing that I've never really actually talked, spoken about. But something to do with like nature and like the cycles and how it's like you can be like mindful about what you're eating and like, you know, to sustain yourself like it's like yeah okay killing something but yeah i don't know no absolutely it's not black no no and i'm for the record i do i don't even remember that yeah that really the fact the guy who gave it to me was an australian guy and he said watch out because i'm going to ruin your next barbecue he gave me as a gift it's so interesting um maybe that's why it stuck out for me because it stuck out for him yeah well i'm glad you've said it after all our vegan chat on this yeah <laughs> but no for the record i try i did try to be vegan um i like the idea of it but i i like food too much and i'm too lazy <laughs> okay last question what three words describe the best version of you ah. um wow okay what three words describe the best version of me um i think i would say um I I can't think of a good word for this, but I, I guess I love I love bringing people together. So um, like welcoming, it's not a great word to describe it, but people say that about me, and I do love connecting, bringing people together. So con- connection, connecting, that, that's a good word. Um, I think tolerant. I definitely like in the past I haven't always been, but I've definitely that side of me I really like and I think that's something I lean into and I would like to think that's a big part of me um and um ah it's so difficult I want to say fun but that sounds lame and but I do think that's but I I, I, I probably more probably more um like iconoclastic like I I, I like what does that word mean like breaking down bash breaking shit like thing how my view of like organized religion if there's a tour group i, I want to be off, not on it if there's a i like to be just like a little bit different so just like and that is not always a great thing about me but actually it's, it's individualistic is probably the better word i think that that and i don't know if that's a good thing but that does that that it does get to the core of a lot of what i am which is why i do struggle with a lot of organized things so yeah but then maybe it complements your first world which is word which yeah. is about bringing people together which yeah because like, i like bringing people together but in, a, in an organic way i love connecting people one of my favorite things is to like oh you've you got to meet this one and people do say that about me and i think that you know people do enjoy that aspect i mean the job i do in terms of public relations is all about bringing people together and that is definitely a kind of a big a big part of it but at the same time I, I, anything which is too organized too formal i kind of bristle at um, and I do like to be a bit like separate from that, and I, I suppose encourage that in other people as well. So yeah, like so much of me you could probably say Gemini because I, I am I am a contradiction, and you know my my style sign. Everyone says you're such a Gemini, and like you know that's interesting how I can have two contradictory things, but I I do I do have that in me as well. <laughs> I'm a Gemini too. Yeah, all the best people, <laughs> apart from everyone else. <laughs> No, Gemini's are the best. <laughs> All right. Until next time. Until next time. Thank you so much. Thank you. <laughs>